Amen, amen. You guys can grab a seat, and uh, we're going to turn our attention to God's Word in just a few moments, but um, I want to introduce you guys. I know some of you have, um, have had a chance to meet Matt, and uh, Matt has uh, been leading worship, uh, not just on the weekend, but also um, in and around our student ministries. And uh, a number of months ago, uh, Matt was kind of just coming and attending our church, and as we got to know Matt, um, we found that Matt had... Um, background in ministry. He had served in some other uh, church contacts, leading worship, and God had closed some doors and sort of led him here to our church. And we got to know Matt, and uh, and we just we just really kind of grew just to love him and the, the things that God's doing in your life. And one of the things in the background that um, that was was had been happening in and around our elder team and our, our leadership team and our staff team was like. Man, if God leads some people to our church for whatever season it might be in regards to their heart for ministry or development, and we have an opportunity uh, to sort of um, open the door for an internship, we want to be open to that. And the legacy of generosity has uh, put us in a position as a church where we were started some conversations and Matt jumped in on the worship team and started serving with students and we just said, uh, Matt, what would, it, what would it look like and would it be a blessing to you to maybe come and do a part-time internship at our church for a season? And we processed through that. And uh, this uh, past week, we offered um, Matt a two-year part-time internship here at Christ Church, and he accepted. And so, <laughs> amen. And so this is a phenomenal opportunity, honestly, we consider it a blessing to be able to kind of just pour into you in this season of ministry and see you continue to serve our church in worship and help advance some of the things in worship ministry and worship within student ministries. And so we're so thankful for you. Thanks so for here, man. appreciate it. Let's thank him. Thanks, Matt. Just love those things that God is doing through our church. And uh, I hope you just pray for Matt as he kind of assimilates onto our team as we uh, just kind of walk alongside him, and uh, these are our privileges, honestly, and uh, it, is a, it is a great, great privilege that we can uh, serve in that way as a church, and excited for what God has for Matt now and in the future. And so, um, now let's turn our attention to God's Word in this series that we're in. Um, two more weeks left in this series. Um, Take Aim is the uh, bigger series we've been in, and we went through um, drawing near to Christ, and then we're in the middle of knowing the work of Christ and kind of coming to the end. And um, next week, we're going to kind of review and process what we've learned about knowing the work of Christ. But um, today, we're going to spend an extended period of time just kind of looking at what the Bible teaches on communion. That's what's in front of us. And so um, one of the things I love in the midst of kind of teaching and leading in our church is I love the opportunity when um, we can uh, deepen our understanding on some of the central practices of the church. I love that opportunity. And because here's the thing, I don't want your expression of faith or my expression of faith to be shallow or weak. Anybody with me this morning? Like, like, as opposed to shallow and weak, like, who's in for depth and strength? Like, raise your hand up high. Like, that's what we're going after in a meeting together. We're not just like, oh, we're here, let's just do another Sunday, worshiping God and acting like we love him, even though we really have no clue about who he is or what he's doing in our lives. Like, we, we want more than that, certainly. 
And so today we want to go, okay, there's this thing, communion, that we do as a church. And if you've been a part of our church for a long time at all, you know there's this like rhythm of us doing this thing called communion. And so what is it? Like, let's study that together. And this morning we're going to walk through it very purposefully. So first off, communion was instituted by Jesus in the Gospels. Communion's been called different things in the context of the church. Some uh, churches refer to it as the Lord's Supper. Others refer to it as the Eucharist or communion. All three of those mean the same general thing. You see this in the Gospels instituted by Jesus. Then in 1 Corinthians 11, you can write that chapter down and go read on your own. But um, in that chapter, Paul writing to the local church in Corinth, is like, hey, here's some directions and information for what's supposed to be happening when you practice communion. And it's there and in the Gospels where you find that the, this practice of communion is intended to sort of be a remembrance of, of Christ's sort of last supper that started his move then to his death on the cross. And so it involves in the tradition of the church and in what Jesus instituted, a, a taking of wine or juice as a symbol of his blood and then uh, some kind of bread in remembrance of what uh, Christ has done in giving us his body. Almost every Christian church that I know of participates in communion regularly because it's important. Because remembering and, and bringing the reality of the work of Christ into the present is so important as a follower of Jesus Christ. Believers want to remember the work of Christ. That's what we've been talking about. And, and to express faith in what Christ has done for them. And recognize that afresh. It has to be more than just a ceremony or a ritual. It has to be something more than that. And I believe that God intended it to be a regular rhythm that leads us to an encounter with God. A real encounter with God. It cannot become an empty ritual. And so let's try to bring some life and breathe some life into this from God's word. Let's look at the scriptures. And so look with me. If you've got your Bibles open, get it open to uh, Luke chapter 22. What I'm going to do is I'm going to let you see where Christ institutes the Lord's Supper or communion, and then we're going to break it down in two specific moves. So we're going to give an overview and then the two moves that we see in communion. Follow with me starting in verse 14. So Jesus is gathered with his um, disciples moments before he's going to be betrayed and go directly towards the cross. And it says there, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And there you have this institution of communion. 
The big idea that I want you to see from this passage and reflected and reinforced in 1 Corinthians 11 is that communion is a corporate rhythm to remember the work of Christ. That's why we we had to take some time to make sure uh, that we understand what communion is and deepen our understanding of it because it's intended to be an ongoing corporate rhythm to remember the work of Christ. It's clear from the scriptures and from the practice of the early church that communion was supposed to be a regular practice. Every church then, as a result of that, has had um, an understanding of this and they've processed what they believe regarding communion. So before we look at um, and walk through and actually partake of uh, this, this move of, of, of God pointing, Jesus pointing to um, my body and my blood, I first just want to um, answer some common questions regarding communion that we get oftentimes when people come to our church. Because we understand there's a lot of different uh, church backgrounds sometimes in our church. And I can think of a variety of them that believe different things about communion. So let me answer some questions that come up. First, how often do we take communion? Well, Jesus says do this but he does not give us a time frame. He's not like, do this weekly or monthly, quarterly, every other year. There's no, no, no guidance on that. It says, do this. That's clear. And so um, we believe it's supposed to be regular. So in the practice of our church, we um, are striving to do it every three weeks Has a regular rhythm, a give or take a week on that. But that's um, where we land on that. Uh, some people have asked, why don't you use wine? Well, in the cultural context, I believe it was wine in the cup, but, um, but the scripture says fruit of the vine, and so we don't believe wine is required, and because of some other realities, um, we have just chosen grape juice as what we use in the midst of communion. That's a question that gets asked. Um, here's another one that gets into sort of a bigger picture of what people have believed about communion. Some people have asked, what does Christ Church believe happens to the elements in communion? Now, I'm going to give you a little, I'm going to give you a little theology lesson, okay? So, so get ready for this. There's four sort of classic church positions on communion. First is transubstantiation. I know, really fancy uh, theological word. What it means is trans, transformed, substantiation, the substance of. So what some believe, particularly in the Catholic uh, church, they believe that the bread and juice are literally transformed into the body and blood of Christ when blessed by the priest. Transubstantiation. Then two is consubstantiation. That's where there's like this idea that the real presence of, of, of like Christ's body and blood like coexist with the elements and near and around the elements, but the actual Physical identity of the bread and the wine or juice does not change. Then there's the memorialist view. This is kind of like, hey, the elements, they're symbols of Christ's death and resurrection, but they simply exist to sort of commemorate what happened in the past. And so that's another belief that oftentimes, even in churches like ours, becomes the sort of common, commonly held belief. But one of the pieces of this that, that 
that I think increasingly has become central to my conviction around communion and our elders are actually processing through this right now, and I'll explain that in a second, is the real or spiritual presence. And, and, and what it means is this. It means that the symbols represent Christ's death and resurrection, but there's a spiritual presence of Christ in the elements when they're taken by faith. See, it's faith that brings life into them. It's, a, it's an encounter with God. It's not just me looking back and, re- and remembering something, but it's me actually remembering what happened in the past and bringing that and applying that to my present life through the work and the power of the Spirit in such a way that is significant and real. So here's what happened as I was preparing this message. I was like, I think the sense of the way of what we believe on this is real or spiritual presence. Then I kind of found myself in a bit of a crisis because I went on our website and I looked at our doctrinal statement and I went, man, I don't know that we've done a good job of representing that. I don't know if it has clarity. So then because our elders are responsible for a a sort of a doctrine as part of that, their responsibility, I I went to an elders meeting this week and I said, I said, men, I think we got to process through this. Where do you land? And we processed through a little bit and our elders have a tremendous support initially for the real or spiritual presence. And so I want you to know that we're walking through a process that uh, you haven't seen. If you've been in our church for a while, you haven't seen something like this play out. But we're walk, working through this together and praying and consulting and studying on our own. And then um, so that when that gets changed, we'll present that and, and let you guys know how we're gonna speak and talk about that subject in the context of our church. But, but let me summarize what, what is sort of the, the move that I see happening already is this. I just wanted to help and serve us this morning. Let's look at the work of Christ in communion. The work of Christ in communion is a public act of worship. That's key, that's key. Where the followers of Christ take symbols of his body and blood and this is critical, and through an expression of faith, throughout church history, you see people coming back to communion again and again and going, the faith element is critical, and the reality of any sense of spiritual presence comes when the the believers of Christ are by faith taking hold of who Christ is and living into that reality. And through an expression of faith in the work of Christ, find spiritual nourishment and growth in grace through the power of the Spirit. That's not a dead ritual. Amen? That is something that I believe Christ is inviting us to in this remembrance. It's nourishing as you let the truth of what Christ has accomplished wash over your life, your mind, and your heart. We need this. It, it grows you in the grace of God by giving you a present, current experience of acknowledging Christ's forgiveness over your guilt and shame and the condemnation of your sin. Anyone need that this morning? I know I do. I need that. This practice should build confidence in the work of Christ and your experience of grace. It should reorient your life around the truth of the gospel. It is a sacred time before the Lord, and many have argued that it is the ultimate expression of unity with Christ corporately. And I believe that. When you understand it like this, it it makes sense why communion is reserved for believers. Because the only people that can access the work of Christ by faith are those who have given their lives to Christ and believe and have faith in what he's done and who he is. 
But it's so much more than just eating bread and drinking some juice. It's a time, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's a time to remember and proclaim and examine. To remember, to bring to your mind the reality of what Christ accomplished in the past. When we even talk about this, the idea of remember, when I use that word, I'm not simply thinking about an intellectual remembering of, of an event that happened in the past. When I talk about remember, when biblically, when Jesus is saying here, he's saying, do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, recognize what I accomplished in the past and take hold of that by faith and bring the past into your present. Does that make sense? It's active, that's the remembering, the proclaiming. Communion is as bold and public as baptism. Do you recognize that? I think sometimes there's, there's seasons we go through when we're like wandering and wavering in our faith and God does something in his word or in the midst of God speaking through community and God begins this reviving of our hearts and we're like, I wanna proclaim that I'm a follower of Jesus. And you see people in the baptism and you're like, maybe I should get baptized again. No, communion. Communion is the proclamation. Communion is the public declaration of your faith again and again and again. And then examine. We examine ourselves in communion. We, we confess our sin before God and we allow the work of Christ to cover our sin afresh in forgiveness. And we turn back to following Christ. That's why, listen to this, that's why communion, when rightly engaged by faith, should stir revival in the heart of the Christian. It should stir revival in our hearts. There's spiritual presence everywhere in this practice. Do you see it this morning? Today we're gonna take time to really practice communion. To almost, um, almost as, a, as a rehearsal would. You know, a, um, a football team, they, they take time leading into the game that they play to slowly walk through the plays that are gonna go way faster when they get in the game. A musical group gathers together and they slowly rehearse the performance, each act independently and purposefully to get ready for the performance. And today with uh, the way we're gonna practice communion is gonna be a slow and purposeful because I want to deepen it this morning so that hopefully some of the things that we practice this morning, when we practice it in maybe the more regular form, it's just going to deepen it a bit for you. And so I'm going to break down the two elements of communion and walk through the body and the blood, and then we're going to partake one at a time, not together. So excited for that this morning. First, Jesus starts by saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So first we have the body. And the, the point or the direction that I sense in the passage and in other places is to rest in the love of Christ. To rest in the love of Christ. Jesus says there, this is my body which is given for you. I want you to recognize that Christ's body given for you is an awesome picture of his love for you. And his body given for you is, 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 a, is a revelation at this point, which they already could see and know, that God was pursuing his people, pursuing them. In his sacrifice on the cross, he shows us the extent of his love 
It's declared there that you are loved. There is no greater expression of love in all of human history. Higher and wider and deeper and more profound than the love, for Christ, the love Christ has for you expressed in giving his body for you. I mean, look at what he endures just to pursue you. I think, I think one, of the, one of the greatest pictures of pursuit was on Christmas and God coming from heaven to earth. Then right in the midst of this passage, right in verse 21, he starts talking about the betrayal that's then going to lead to his capture, that then is going to lead to him being beaten and flogged, his arms and legs eventually spread out and nailed to the cross because of his love, knowing he had to die so that he could welcome all to come experience his love. His death on the cross was the loudest statement of his love. The volume was not higher and has not been higher than that moment on the cross. He declared, you are loved. Remember and rest in the love of Christ. See, but this constant pursuing of, of you because of God's love, it, it, was, it was building momentum way before his death, wasn't it? It's building momentum way before his death. Everything in redemptive history was building to this moment that sits at the very centerpiece of redemptive history. Before the foundation of the world, the Bible says, in love he predestined us to adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus. Then God created mankind Adam and Eve, and through his love, God led his people out of slavery in Egypt and established his people. He led his people to the promised land, constantly pursuing them, constantly pursuing them. With, out of his love, he drew his people back despite their constant idolatry and rebellion. He just kept wooing them back, kept wooing them back. The constant pursuit of his love is seen with prophet after prophet calling God's people back to right, holy worship. And then he shows the extent of his love by sending his son into the world to live a perfect life, to share the message of salvation and to die on the cross, to take the penalty for our sin, the perfect sacrifice, to offer us forgiveness and grace. And now, through the power of the Spirit, God draws us to himself, you to himself, to experience his love and to teach you to love God and love others. It's profound. Constant pursuit. It's never ending. It's never failing. It's never stopping. Christ's love is steadfast. It's marked by his unfailing kindness and devotion, his body given for you. Can I get an amen this morning? It's just, it's awesome, and it's awesome in light of the fact that my heart, like your heart, we have an insatiable appetite and never-ending desire to be loved. And it is only Christ's love that can satisfy your deepest longings. Oh, the pain. Oh, the pain that I watch and see and at times experience in my own life when I don't rest, when we don't rest in Christ's love. 
when our longings are allowed to pursue something and try to find its end in anything apart from the love of Christ, it causes pain and disappointment because you, if, if not resting in Christ, you will give yourself to lesser loves that will literally hollow out your soul and destroy it. Whether it's relationships or careers or family or money, whatever you put on the throne, it is hollowing out your soul because there's nothing where your heart will find the, the greater degree of rest more, satisfy more deeply than in the love of Christ. The body of Christ given for you. Rest in the love of Christ that pursues you. In the, in the, the sort of stillness and solitude of communion, we want to remember his constant pursuit and uh, we want to let our hearts be saturated by his love. And so I, I just want to take a moment as we prepare uh, here. I'm, we're going to just look at four kind of awesome biblical declarations of God's love. Look at it with me on the screen so you don't have to turn your Bible. First, Psalm 26.3. For your steadfast love is before my eyes. And I walk in your faithfulness. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. How about 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. Or Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Let this truth saturate your mind and heart. There are some, there are some dry, dry, dry places in your life and in mine where the love of God just needs to come like rain wash over that part of your life. For some of you, the rain of God's love will feel purifying, starting to wash away some of the filth of sin in this world. It's the beautiful way God works in his love. We want to let it satisfy our deepest longings. And so just in a, a, a moment, uh, we're going to ask you, invite you to come forward to take the bread, the body of Christ. We have little pieces of bread for you and um, a, a different, you're just going to come forward and somebody's going to drop it in your hand and only the bread in this first move. As the song is sung, what I want you to do is I want you to, as I invite you, I want you to come and you're going to take that piece of bread and I want you to return to your seat and just start to eat it. And as you eat it, I want you to process what you're taking in what you're receiving, his body given for you. The picture of his love, no restraint. He was holding back nothing for you. Engage your faith, receive the truth of his love over every part of your identity. We're gonna take it in this morning, slowly and purposefully. So let's invite the servers to come forward now. And there are uh, stations in the back. So if you're towards the back, please go that direction. And then we have two stations towards the front. And so 
Um, church, let's, let's, let's go now and let's take this and let's take it as we're ready and process the love of Christ and rest in it. Let's do it now. thank you for your work. And Father, I'm, I'm reminded of, of your declaration that, that you are the bread of life. Father, to even uh, consume the, the bread this morning reminded me of your call for us to draw near and consume the reality of who you are into the center of our souls and our lives to guide and direct us and to become the very life not just the life that you sustain in your power but to direct the the decisions the attitudes the the purpose of our life god do it for your glory let us release and surrender so that the body given for us would be the body that we would follow and worship. Thank you, God. Continue to lead us. Thank you for this opportunity to remember. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, we're not done yet. Because Jesus started with the bread. And then what happens next is, is he says that this is the cup that is poured out for you, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. If you want a reference that's gonna help you understand the importance of the blood, uh, you can write down in your notes uh, Hebrews 9.22. It's there where the writer of Hebrews says, indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood was necessary. It was a picture of the power of what Christ had accomplished. That's why the second observation as we work through this is the blood. We revel in the power of Christ's death. We revel in it. We revel. The idea of reveling is, is celebratory. It's loud. It's an expression of like, yes, that's what I believe. And there's an expression of joy in revelry. It's the cup poured out for you. The passage here makes the reference and the connection that this cup that's poured out for you, this blood that Jesus is going to uh, spill as he uh, gets nailed to the cross, this sacrifice that would conclude in his death, that it is a, a picture, it, is, a, it is, is declaring that the new covenant has come. This new covenant is something that, that, that the work of Christ completed or opened the door for that new covenant. But, so it was established in the past, but, but note this, it's still applicable in the present. It's still applicable in the present. Because there were some dark realities playing out at this table in which they were seated. He talks of suffering and in verse 21, it starts to unpack the betrayal of Judas. There's death and blood in the midst of this 
But when Jesus says that this cup being poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, it's as if in the midst of the darkness there is the, the sort of rays of light of the new covenant beginning to dawn on the horizon. Even in the midst of the, of the cup representing his death, the, the, the darkness of all darkness, there's the rays and the beauty of the new covenant beginning to emerge. See, see, this new covenant, this move that Jesus would make, well, confounded the minds of anyone because their expectation was, was that Jesus was going to raise up an army and conquer the forces that were leading at that time. But redemptive history had a different plan. The, the, the raising up was not going to happen through an army in a conquering way. It was going to happen through the Son of God being sacrificed on the cross and being raised up. And suddenly the center of redemptive history would come and the new covenant is in Christ's blood. So what does this new covenant mean for you and me? What is accomplished in Christ's death that literally transforms your relationship with God to create a new covenant? Covenant is relationship language. And there's a new covenant that, that opens the door for, for, for anyone by faith in what Christ has accomplished to have an intimate, enduring, satisfying, right and good relationship with God. That's the new covenant. And so what is it about his death that opened the door for that? I want to look carefully and slowly as we prepare to take the cup. I want us to look at six transformational elements of Christ's death that are a revelation of the new covenant. I want to break these down carefully. You can see the list there. I'm just going to read them first, and we're going to break down each one. Substitution. Expiation. Go back to the big list. Just walk through it. Propitiation. Reconciliation. Redemption. Victory. And if you're like, I want to write those down, they're coming one at a time. Here we go. Let's process these together. First one, substitution. His death was in my place. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, him for us, so that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See the purpose, church. The, 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 this death was to bring us to God, to bring us back into right relationship with him. And then second, expiation. His death removes X out of my sin and guilt. Hebrews 9.26, the second part. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. To put it away. To take the reality of your sin and guilt in the power of Christ by faith that you can literally have it taken away, put away. Do you understand the freedom that's there? Peace that can come from that. Third, propitiation. His death removes God's wrath. 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, his body given for you. 
to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the sacrifice. Listen, God on the cross through his death took God's wrath. The death was necessary for, to, to cover and to pay the penalty of the judgment, the right judgment for your sins and my sins. And God took that wrath so that we could experience relationship with him without fear and without any fear of condemnation. That's a boldness in relationship that God gives us. Fourth, reconciliation. His death reconciles me to God. Romans 5, 10, and 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And Paul declares in that, that through the work of Christ, our sin doesn't separate us from God anymore. And there's this sweet reconciliation that comes in the new covenant. Five, redemption. His death frees me from captivity to sin. Romans 3, 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, because of what Christ has done, every part of your life can be redeemed. As I was thinking about this when I was recognizing this is why uh, uh, communion needs to be this rhythm in the church. Because every time we come before communion, there's an aspect of redemption that God is wanting to redeem. There's an aspect of our lives that God's wanting to redeem. and Sometimes it's the same as a few weeks ago. Sometimes it's something new that God is wanting to do and change and transform in us. But it's possible because of his death. And then finally, six, victory. His death triumphs over the power of Satan. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's victory in Christ. That's the testimony of the gospel, that Satan is a defeated foe, that your flesh can be crucified. But you know what you need and I need? In communion, we're realizing afresh that pattern of the way I'm living and thinking, that needs to be, I need to live in the victory, not in the defeat. That there's parts of my heart and life that need to be redeemed and there's parts of my flesh that are not being crucified in its desires and passions. But communion reminds me that I have victory and I can put to death that which wars against me. So look at these together. capture the weight of what was accomplished in his blood being poured out for you. When we take the cup, remember, realize what you're doing. See, remembering by faith, remembering that leads to faith, remembering that has with it an active faith is bringing past truths into your present reality. Think about it like this. As you take the cup this morning, take a drink of substitution and let it stir up gratitude and love for Jesus.
taste expiation as the truth of his death covers your shame and guilt. Savor his propitiation as Christ's righteousness covers you from God's wrath. Let the sweetness of reconciliation draw your heart near to God. Digest redemption to give you the energy to walk away from sin and towards holiness. Consume the victory as you stand in triumph because of his death for you. Amen, church? We're reveling. We're reveling in this. We're reveling in the power of Christ's death. So when the cup is passed in just a few moments, I want you to hold on to the cup and and I want you to spend a few minutes reveling in the truth of what Christ has accomplished for you. And just reflect on the reality that it's true, it's finished. Regardless of what you feel right now, regardless of what's played out in your life in the past week, recognize it afresh. Let your faith take hold of it. But reveling is a bit lively and noisy. It's not a quiet and passive. And so after reflecting and taking that time, holding the cup when you're ready, I want you to, to drink it down and take time to taste its sweetness. And remember that that is a reflection to point your heart towards what Christ has done for you. And then, after taking it and drinking it down, I want you then to express your thankfulness out loud. It's going to stretch some of you, but let's do it. We're reveling in the power of Christ's death. And so after taking it, I just want you just to say amen or or thank you, Jesus, or some uh, quick expression to God out loud, out loud enough for the people around you to hear. This is a public testimony. Let's celebrate and revel in the power of Christ's death. And so communion service, you can come now. And they're going to hand out the communion and hand out the cups that represent Christ's death. And we're going to revel in the power of Christ's death as the band sings over us. Let's do that now.